James Brooks, Melanie Trent de Shutter Library Director here at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, and I'm delighted to welcome you all to this evening lecture. I just want to make sure it does sound like you can all hear me, but just to check, you can hear me at the back. Fantastic. The VMHC acknowledges the Powhatan Confederacy and the Monacan nation that inhabited the land where the museum now stands. We seek to honor that history and to maintain thoughtful relationships with those indigenous people and all the tribes of Virginia. Their story is integral to Virginia's past, its present, and its future. And we also wish to acknowledge the generosity of former trustee Anne Worrell, who endowed this lecture series in honor of our former president and CEO, Dr. Charles Bryan. Just before we get started tonight, um, I just want to run through a couple of upcoming events. Um, some in the short-term future, some in the in the on the horizon a little bit. So this week, some of you may be aware, we actually announced our inaugural History Matters Symposium, which is going to be held on November 4th, 2023. This event is going to uh, explore the theme of discovery in Virginia history. So attendees will have the opportunity to hear from 12 panels comprising 40 scholars and public historians from across the United States on topics ranging from 18th century Williamsburg scientific community to firsthand accounts of Virginia's school desegregation movement. Ending the day will be a special reception and keynote lecture from Colonial Williamsburg's Director of Archaeology, Jack Gary. Please visit our website to learn more. On August 25th at 6 p.m., please join us here at the VMHC, along with the Black History Museum and Cultural Center of Virginia, as well as Richmond Beer Historic for a craft beer program that will examine the past, present, and future of brewing in Virginia's Black communities. And finally, the next event in our lecture series that's going to be held here in the Robbins Family Forum is going to happen on noon um, at noon on September 7th. And in fact, this, um, this lecture will in fact be a roundtable discussion in which three presidential scholars will come together for a conversation about how different generations have eulogized and remembered US presidents since 1799. And as we get on to today's program or tonight's program rather, I'd just like to remind you all just to take a moment to check your mobile phones and make sure that they're all switched to uh, silent or that they're switched off. So tonight's lecture draws from Dr. Michael Lawrence Dickinson's newest publication and first book, Almost Dead, Slavery and Social Rebirth in the Black Urban Atlantic from 1680 to 1807. Through an exploration of urban centers tied together by commerce and trade, Michael shed, sheds light on the connections between communities of enslaved people across mainland America and the Caribbean. These cities were spaces for both, both black oppression and black resilience, as subjugation entwined with the captives' need to hold on to their own humanity. Michael's book argues that urban environments provided a unique space for social rebirth, the process by which people of African descent reconstructed their lives after forced exportation from West Africa. In its broadest sense, Almost Dead emphasizes the ways in which urban centers across the Atlantic world both shaped and were shaped by black lives and experiences. Dr. Michael Lawrence Dickinson is an associate professor of African-American history at Virginia Commonwealth University. Between 2019 and 2020, Michael was the, the Borough Sabbat uh, Sabbatical Fellow at University of Pennsylvania's Center for Early American Studies. And his first book and the subject of tonight's lecture, Almost Dead, was published in 2022 and won the Lovejoy Prize from the Journal of Global Slavery for excellence and originality in a major work on the theme of global slavery. I actually first had the pleasure of hearing Michael talk last December when he spoke on the varied roles that African-Americans played during the American Revolution at Historic St. John's Church for an event regarding uh, um, um, Benedict Arnold's raid on Richmond just up the road from us. And so I'm particularly excited to hear Michael speak tonight. So enough of me talking. Let's turn over to Michael Dickinson and uh, please join me in welcoming him to the stage. Thank you all so much for being here tonight. And thank you uh, to James for that wonderful introduction, for, to Graham and to all the folks here at the 
VMHC for their uh, for their help, for their the opportunity, and for their support. Um, I love being here. You have wonderful folks here, and so uh, I'm glad that you are all uh, joining us tonight. Um, as uh, as James mentioned, and you can see above the title of my book is Almost Dead, um, Slavery and Social Rebirth in the Black or Mid-Atlantic. And so this is always a tall order to try and encapsulate an entire book in, in a very short talk. Uh, so what we're going to do for today is, uh, is try to look at the broad uh, scope of the book, and then I'm going to go into a particular chapter that I think is sort of fitting given the time of the year, and you'll, you'll understand more why once we get into the actual talk. Um, the book itself and the title is taken from the narrative of an enslaved man named Jeffrey Brace, who uh, was a Revolutionary War veteran. Um, he uses uh, these words, he uh, uses the, this idea of being almost dead and communicating his uh, circumstances to an enslaved man in, uh, in Bridgetown, Barbados, after being uh, forcibly exported to West Africa. And he uses this quote, he says, I am almost dead. And the argument I make in the book is that he's speaking as much to his physical condition as to his social reality and cultural reality, being stripped of his loved ones, being stripped of his um, cultural ties that are uh, tenuous, right, because he's being forcibly exported from West Africa and uh, forced to rebuild. And, and the project looks at what is that, um, how are these individuals rebuilding in spaces, urban spaces in the Caribbean and on the mainland during the uh, 17th and 18th centuries um, and into the early 19th century. And so uh, the book itself focuses on a number of cities, uh, not Richmond, uh, but we can have a conversation afterward um, when Richmond comes into play into the late 1800s and uh, what that looks like in terms of my next project, uh, because I'd be happy to chat about that if we get some time in Q&A. Uh, so without further ado, um, our discussion today is going to uh, be about the American Revolution, actually, and this is uh, in part because of the time that we're discussing this, um, after the 4th of July, clearly after Juneteenth, um, also, uh, some of you might have heard Emancipation Day celebrations that happen in the West Indies and in the United States among African-American populations on August 1st. And so we, we have, a, uh, I think, a real opportunity to really think about what freedom means for us, what it means for these people um, of African descent that we'll be discussing, and uh, how do we think about going forward in terms of, of freedom. And so uh, the larger project really starts out in West Africa and follows individuals um, into the Caribbean and into the mainland United States once again. And uh, this map helps visualize that. Um, the book ends with an epilogue where I was fortunate enough to be able to interview a couple of descendants of uh, Jeffrey Brace, um, the man whose uh, quote actually features the title. And that gives us, or provided me with the opportunity to really think about uh, where do we go from here? And what do we do with these stories and testimonies of enslavement? How does it impact how we move forward as individuals, as a society? And uh, how do we really think about these really tangible connections to the past? So with that said, uh, our, um, our my remarks for today are taken from chapter titled The Dread of Punishment. Quote, run away from the subscriber living in Philadelphia, a Negro man named Caesar announced the general advertiser on 1774 um, in July 4th. Um, as you can see, this is the, the ad above. A mere two years before American colonists would write a landmark document, the periodical publicized this individual act of liberty. But Caesar's declaration of independence took a very different form and required more than words. The enslaved man who was described as quote unquote impertinent and insolent, as you can see above, certainly had a reputation for resistance long before absconding. Caesar's disappearance was one of countless escapes during the era of slavery. This was the remote world that gripped many enslaved people after disembarking in the Americas, a world that menaced Caesar in his escape, a world that criminalized black liberty and scourged captive resi resistance. The flight of urban bonds people revealed the frailty of a system relying upon force and fear. The desire for liberty was a disease in the eyes of oppressors kept at bay by the structures of the institution. But one arrays were individuals whose actions, if successful, could spread the contagion of self-liberation, threatening the delicate balance of bondage. Caesar was one such man, and his actions to seize independence implicitly challenged the institution of slavery. 
His escape provides a window into the complex act of absconding and the repercussions of capture in urban Anglo-America. A useful method to understand the basis of slave fear. Port cities provided fresh possibilities for runaways, but there are also realms where failure resulted in torture. Anglo-Atlantic cities were crucial locations of destination for departure of runaways where the potential reward mingled with the promise of retribution. And so uh, when we think about this man, Caesar, we're going to really delve into his story in the time we have together today, uh, realizing that the book looks at a number of figures um, to try and understand and get a window into what it means to be enslaved, what it means to have to rebuild, and in this case, what it means to run away and try to seek liberation. And despite uh, all the things we're discussing in terms of what's at stake for this individual, Caesar, and folks like him, I think we can also leave with a message of hope, um, a, a message of the of the lasting value of liberty for these individuals, including Caesar, who uh, went through great uh, went through um, great uh, odds and uh, went through um, uh, great uh, struggles in order to realize the dream of liberty. Caesar's slaveholder feared that Caesar would flee to the West Indies. This was a reasonable assumption given that Caesar was born in Jamaica and formerly served under a ship captain. The enslaved man was taken from his native Jamaica, likely from the port of Kingston, and ultimately in Philadelphia at the time of his disappearance. His master's fears speak volumes in many ways. The suspicion suggests that the slaveholder remained confident to some extent in Caesar's ability to successfully organize and escape thousands of miles by ship to a land from his recent past. While seemingly minor detail, Caesar's trajectory also revealed the interconnected nature of Anglo-American port cities as sites of enslaved Black life and labor. Along with sugar, rum, and other goods brought from the West Indies, Philadelphia, like many urban centers in the mainland, um, these merchants also imported Black bodies. In fact, the first shipment of enslaved Africans sold in Philadelphia, by Philadelphia Quakers in 1684 was likely shipped from Barbados and followed the trade route arriving from Bridgetown or Kingston to Philadelphia. And so in this respect, Philadelphia is very uh, emblematic of, of early American cities at the time, whether that's New York, Boston, Charleston, uh, we can go on. These very real connections to the West Indies um, that, uh, that help us understand this trajectory in which uh, brings Caesar to Philadelphia, but also uh, help us understand why his master was so afraid that he would go back to Philadelphia. While Caesar fled a Philadelphia slaveholder, urban centers throughout the British Atlantic were hubs for fugitives. Whether in the Caribbean or on the mainland, cities held the hope of liberty for runaways as well as the constant peril of discovery. Like many escaped bonds people, Caesar went through significant lengths to increase his chances of leaving slavery behind indefinitely. The enslaved man absconded with an array of clothing, including a coat, a jacket, and multiple pairs of stockings and trousers. His goal in bringing an expansive wardrobe likely went beyond merely keeping warm. Clothing options provided greater opportunity for anonymity. Moreover, the high quality of clothing taken would have helped him pass as a free person of color. Urban bondage afforded closer proximity to whites in many cases, which could provide increased theft opportunities. Caesar also removed a pipe box from his slaveholder's possession, an item to potentially trade in exchange for concealment or food. The slave system forced runaways to make a series of precarious decisions. Theft aided in flight, including food, money, and weapons were all potential acquisitions that could become the difference between freedom and unimaginable despair. But in procuring such tools, enslaved people increased the reprisals looming in the periphery. Caesar faced more than double the lashes for, selling, for stealing goods to assist in his escape. The system often trapped runaways, therefore, in a system of mounting infractions. So we can see that flight was an exercise in gambling, a treacherous game of chance where the stakes could never be higher. And so here, uh, in one of ways, we can see some of the details of this ad and, and what, uh, what Caesar is doing here, understanding that uh, that we're constantly going to be evaluating uh, the fact that for enslaved individuals, this was a calculus, how to maximize the potential of achieving freedom um, as a reality rather than be re recaptured. And theft is part of that, to try to 
um, tried to make sure that they have things to sell, trying to make sure they can uh, conceal themselves um, and the like in, in order to try to make the, the chances of uh, actually realizing freedom a reality. In urban spaces, some runaways were able to find work while maintaining the guise of free status. Consequently, runaway announcements in Anglo-American newspapers often advised potential employers about known aliases and labor specialties. Thus, even employment could prove hazardous, constituting another potential snare in an endless web of jeopardy. But fugitives could and did navigate such perils. Since liter literacy rates in colonial cities tended to be higher than in the countryside, runaway advertisements in newspapers, like the one you see above, likely increased the chances of capture for urban bonds people. Further, newspaper publishers were often located in cities. For example, the Gen General Advertiser and the Pennsylvania Gazette, the two publications which announced Caesar's flight, were both produced in Philadelphia. Caesar's slaveholder, Philip Wilson, was a well-known merchant in Philadelphia. Wilson used the pages periodicals to advertise his newly imported wares for sale, as well as announce his misplaced human property. From Liverpool, for instance, he announced the availability of several goods, including shoe binding, colored threads, and a variety of textiles. West Indian rum and sugar were also among the goods frequently sold by the merchants. While it does not appear Wilson traded enslaved people directly, his business did rely on forced labor. After he was taken from the Caribbean, Caesar likely never saw his family again. A father ripped away, a mother torn from his grasps. Caesar's story was a cruelly common tale. Black bodies were staples of Atlantic commerce, uh, forming the lucrative trade network of urban Anglo-America. The ship routes which linked mainland ports to West Indian cities formed trails of hardship and separation. However, within Caesar's service were potential seeds of hope. Laboring on the burden of bondage was a daily indignity, but Caesar would have acquired an array of skills while serving a merchant. Formerly enslaved man Equiano, a lot of Equianos, who some of you might have heard of and are familiar with, for instance, worked in several capacities when uh, held by a trader in the late 18th century. Equiano had duties of a clerk, a domestic servant, a groom, and a sailor, among other things. Caesar likely held a similar array of skills, and these abilities would have translated into a number of employment opportunities. Adaptability was crucial to camouflage, and versatility was vital to survival. Caesar likely had uh, considerable mobility while serving a merchant as well, Enslaved men would have spent a large portion of his time aiding Wilson in the store along Front Street, uh, but the merchant would also have sent Caesar through to errands throughout the city. Goods required loading and unloading along the wharves. Purchased goods uh, needed to be delivered, and perhaps Caesar's master instructed him occasionally to serve as a crew member on merchant voyages. These were all opportunities to escape the clutches of servitude and make freedom a reality. And so here we can get into the, the, uh, the calculus and mindset of Caesar, right? Within this movement that he's able to have throughout the city um, in, in, um, in actually fulfilling his roles as um, a merchant's assistant or a merchant's servant, he's able likely to make these connections to individuals who are going to help him escape, right? Um, whether they're uh, black or white allies. Um, he's also able to uh, be able to know uh, how to slip on, in and on ships, how to actually survive on ships, right? And how to how um, to navigate that world in very real and tangible ways that will translate uh, potentially into him being able to go back to the West Indies to uh, be reunited with loved ones. And so here we see uh, above a sale ad that really helps us understand some of these commercial connections. Um, this is an ad uh, in a Philadelphia newspaper that um, talks about a shipment of enslaved individuals uh, coming from the West Indies, but it could be any number of cities, right? Um, in so much that Philadelphia is representative of, um, of what happens in most mainland cities, whether again, New York, Boston, uh, Charleston, for instance. And so you can see that uh, this is an ad posted in a newspaper for um, a group of um, quote unquote, likely Negroes. The term likely is, um, is a term that was used to signify or suggest a level of vibrancy and working and laboring capacity. 
Um, and you can see that they are uh, they are being sold in exchange for money, flour, brisket, or pork. Um, the spelling back then is a little wonky, but you you see that this is uh, this is common among uh, among traders, and this is because um, it's a sense of the typical transaction here in newspapers. At the age of 22, Caesar represented the pervasive demographic of runaways in Anglo America. Flight was a complex equation. His age would have been asset. And uh, he would have had the strength and knowledge of adulthood without the physical limitations of old age. Youthful vigor would help him in the arduous and hazardous exercise of absconding. Caesar's youth allowed him to travel long distances, hide in cramped spaces, and secure necessities for survival. His quote-unquote well-made legs, as noted in the advertisement, would have served him well in the most important race of his life. Caesar was also known to box among his comrades for sport. The stamina he once used for recreation would be vital for a fight much with much larger stakes. This was a battle for freedom, freedom from exploitation, freedom from psychological shackles, freedom from institutional restraints. Uh, but Caesar's flight was also an ideological assault against slavery itself, though perhaps the larger impact was both um, unknown and unintended. The actions of runaways struck powerful blows to the system uh, predicated on human domination. Caesar's absence contested the belief that a human being could be completely controlled, a premise at the core of slavery in Anglo-America when Caesar fled. Slaveholders hoped to transform captives into commodities, but those efforts were in vain. Indeed, enslaved Blacks were bought and sold. Bonds people certainly obeyed commands of their oppressors in large degree, but compliance did not equate to surrender and purchase did not remove humanity. And now his dreams of freedom could become a reality or transform into a nightmare. And certainly strong attributes could increase the chances of escape. And so um, this is where we also need to wrap our heads around the, the physical arduousness of running away, right? So it's it's exercise in um, in um, mental gymnastics, but also it's a it's a physical toll, um, something we don't tend to think about in the process of running away and trying to claim freedom. Um, that this is uh, this demands a lot on the body in terms of being able to be concealed, in terms of being able to travel long distances, um, even being able to um, to hide in cramped spaces, and and so uh, wrapping our heads around uh, what it actually means to uh, try to make sure one is. Uh, is permanently um, a fugitive from, from slavery. It requires not only the mental exercises, but also the physical. But the detailed bodily descriptions of many runaway advertisements also revealed insight into the world of bondage. Flight announcements were riddled with intricate details meant to help identify runaways. These attributes were often um, included conspicuous observations such as height, build, or color, but some also included more intimate information such as scars or birthmarks. For example, one 18th century advertisement noted a bondswoman named Betty was bow-legged. Her slaveholder also informed readers that the woman was missing, quote, one of the joints out of her middle toe on her right foot and has a scar inside her leg, end quote. It, was, it is within these brief notices we received glimpses into slaveholders' familiarity with black bodies. Whether at slave scrambles, auction block, or under the watchful eye of urban slaveholders, slavery often held constant indignities. It behooves slaveholders to know the physical attributes of enslaved people, both for purchase and reclamation, therefore. Now, it is unclear what specific incident uh, triggered Caesar's escape. Many runaways fled to unite with spouses, children, and other family members. Wilson's fear that Caesar's return to Jamaica, um, it was valid and it was reasonable, despite the, the lengths in which it would take to actually um, accomplish such a task. Remembrances of a parent's touch would not have been far from Caesar's mind uh, during his years of bondage. But runaways often fled for a myriad of other reasons, which we can get into in a, in, um, in a moment. But this is a... a, a, a 18th century depiction of the port of Kingston. So I think um, it helps us to imagine uh, this is the port that Caesar would have likely left and would have been shipped up to the mainland. And this is where he was trying to get back to. And so this would have been the last image uh, that would have been seared into his mind when he was taken from the Caribbean and, and uh, removed from his family. 
Now, uh, there are a myriad of reasons in which individuals run ran away. Some fled after suffering harsh punishment uh, or treatment after receiving meager rations as well. A number of forced laborers absented themselves when slaveholder promises of manumission went unfulfilled. Others escaped after being sold to a new slaveholder, and still many bonds people required no additional catalyst than the potential solace of a free life. Regardless of their motivations, bonds people heard the enticing whispers of liberty, and a number dared to answer. But absconding was rarely a spontaneous act. The severe consequences which accompanied capture left little room for impulse or error. And so here we get more, more insight into the process of planning for an escape. That's typically how this was done. It's, it's extraordinarily rare that, that, um, that, it's, that this happens on a whim that an enslaved individual just decides to run away. Um, instead, this is usually a planned endeavor as we saw already with Caesar, for example, when he, uh, when he was, uh, took goods with him to sell and ordered also clothing with him to camouflage. Um, and, uh, and so this helps us understand, again, the, the, the mindset of those enslaved, what it took to try to increase the potential of a successful escape rather than being reclaimed. It was uncommon, it was common for captives to leave uh, with stolen goods, as was the case with Caesar, and many fugitives absconded at favorable times of year during periods of fair weather or decreased surveillance. Caesar, for instance, fled in June when the weather was warm. This was also when merchant activity reached its peak, meaning that he likely had increased mobility. So that, that also means, because he has increased mobility, that he'll probably likely uh, receive less questions, at least initially, because uh, people in the community around the city are used to him moving around about his master's business. Captives also remained attuned to other circumstances, such as societal stability. When war arrived, for instance, some laborers used the opportunity chaos afforded for example, hundreds of enslaved uh, individuals fled Philadelphia masters during the, civil, the uh, Revolutionary War. And uh, you might hear historians occasionally mention or, or use the idea that uh, the Revolutionary War was the largest slave revolt in American history. And what they're, what they're discussing here is that about 100,000 enslaved individuals fled uh, their slaveholders during the Revolutionary War. And this is part of the calculus, right? If we're thinking about the delicate equation to try to maximize the, the chances of a successful escape, war and the chaos it provides is, is part of that equation to try to maximize success. And so they're, they're very savvy and, um, and uh, very, uh, very thoughtful about their, uh, these escapes in order to try to make sure that, they, uh, that this, if they're going to make this gamble, that is a successful gamble in this regard. After leaving bondage behind, a new struggle to survive began, however. Caesar's employment likely furnished the enslaved man with some concealment. White colonists were accustomed to uh, him walking up and down the streets of cities, fulfilling their quests of his slaveholders. And so he had only to cite business purposes if curious citizens inquired, or perhaps show a fabricated pass if prompted. A 1725 law attempted to limit avenues of camouflage like these. The legislation barred uh, bonds people in Pennsylvania from securing their own labor assignments in the hiring out process to constrain captive mobility. And so these are um, in so much that Pennsylvania is representative of a larger swath of these uh, slave laws, which it is. Um, there are laws in, in, um, in all the colonies that try to really constrict and um, try to tamp down on this ability of movement for enslaved individuals for this very reason, right? Uh, because within that movement provides the greater opportunities for escape for folks like Caesar. Flight was a mental challenge as well as a physical exercise, and bonds people developed remarkably clever methods of avoiding captor, capture. Forging passes, fabricating stories, feigning ignorance, all methods of traveling under the gaze of watchful eyes. Now, while the potential window before discovery could vary, runaways did have some time typically before their escape was publicized. It was not uncommon for bonds people to leave for short periods of time and return. A laborer might take a brief absence to visit a family member or uh, leverage for better rations. Consequently, masters often waited at least 30 days before placing advertisement. So Caesar, for instance, fled in June, but his escape was initially announced in July. Those slaveholders who did place notices had to pay a fee for, to the newspaper, and this cost of placing ad uh, was there for consideration for slaveholders. An elderly laborer uh, who constantly, or a laborer who constantly fled might not be worth the investment for the advertisement. 
The social implication could, should also be mentioned. Announcing that a captive fled was an implicit acknowledgement that a master did not exert complete control. Public notices forced slaveholders to confront the precarious nature of slavery and their limitations as oppressors. These were confessions slaveholders had to communicate to both themselves and to their neighbors within these advertisements. Although the announcements only represent a portion of enslaved individuals who freed themselves from the shackles of forced labor, records do suggest that bonds people fled frequently throughout the period of slavery. Fugitives often absconded with destination in mind. For bonds people on the run, allies were often as important as goods in this labyrinth of peril. Philadelphia in particular was home to a free black population or a large free black population, I should say, constituting potential resources for uh, bonds people fleeing the captivity which haunted their days. Like Bridgetown and um, Caribbean port cities and all of the major cities uh, that we can discuss in the 18th century, these large black free black populations um, provided useful, uh, useful resources. Urban, urban free people were often siblings, children, friends, or distant relations of those enslaved. And for some laborers, allies within these populations proved uh, to be the difference between liberty and catastrophe. Now, it's worthwhile to pause here and think about uh, how the slave system is set up throughout um, British or British America and into the United States. It's set up in a way that incentivizes and uh, makes these allies problematic, both white and black. And what I mean by that is that it, it incentivizes um, uh, information being shared about potential runaways or, or any, um, any form of rebelliousness among enslaved individuals. And um, of course, it chastises anyone who knows information and refuses to, to acknowledge them, whether they're a free person of color, whether they're an enslaved um, person, or whether they're an, a white ally. And so there's a system of surveillance set up here um, that's typical of early America broadly um, and will be con constant throughout the period of slavery and the era of slavery uh, that made this delicate balance, right? This delicate calculus of who do I trust and when, um, under what circumstances should I ask someone for trust uh, as a runaway? Um, is it worth the, the gamble, right? And so these are, these are ways that I think we can really wrap our heads around or inhabit the space of folks like Caesar who are trying to, uh, to perform successful escapes such were the many possibilities and considerations which entered the thoughts of some runaways and characterized the actions of others. Certainly port cities furnished runaways with potential opportunities for liberty, but these locales also held great, grave danger to those reclaimed. Fugitive was the term used at the time, which denotes that Caesar and other runaways were in violation of the law, criminals of the state, and most importantly, threats to the status quo. To be a fugitive meant to implicitly challenge the very fabric of slavery. This meant that, that offenses required repercussions in the form of blood and agony. The spatial closeness of urban centers meant disobedience could result in disaster if the venom of liberty spread into the minds of those enslaved. This was an alternate vision of liberty than the freedom championed by mainland whites when Caesar was absconded in 1774. For most slaveholders, Caesar's act of personal liberty was the gateway to dangerous anarchy rather than noble liberation. Liberty was a disease and brutality was the cure. And as a result, fugitives faced harsh reprisals even in the late 18th century when natural rights discourse flourished. And so here we, it's worthwhile for us to, to uh, note that when we think about popular depictions of slavery, uh, we tend to think about the violence of slavery and the um, the act of, of punishment and repercussions. We tend to think of those things in on plantations, and rightfully so, uh, but that's only part of the story. What we don't think about is how these urban centers, uh, we can also talk about how Richmond, for instance, is, is part of that story as well, that they function as spaces of collective public punishment um, in a similar way as on plantations in ways that uh, we often do not think about in popular depictions of slavery. Now, legal statutes give some sense of the consequences enslaved people fleeing to and from cities confronted. Local governments, which passed majority of slave laws, operated within influential towns, such as uh, the many of, in early America. Perhaps most significantly, however, urban spaces could constrain the autonomy of slaveholders in disciplining their bonds people. Slavery was uh, 
an institution that relied upon collective surveillance once again. But for urban masters, this could create the need for increased uh, conformity in the face of potential criticism from neighbors. The severity of such regulations was often a function of what was at stake in terms of collective security and safety. And if we uh, look briefly at the case of an enslaved man named Samson, it reveals just that. Samson serves in one example, a valuable example of the potential public necessity for strict reprisals during the period. In 1737, Samson was accused of, confessed to, and, conv and convicted for uh, attempting to set the house of his former slaveholder on fire. The all-white jury initially sentenced him to death after the prosecutor, quote, furnished the court with sufficient proofs to show the wicked disposition of the criminal, his malice, threatened resentments against his uh, owner of the house and the person who then lived in it, together with the criminal's former bad character, end quote. Samson's animosity toward his former oppressor was therefore not a secret among this community, according to the transcript. And his quote-unquote bad character likely suggested the man's continued rebelliousness. His failure to be complacent may explain why he was sold away, a common recourse for slaveholders with unruly captives. After Samson was condemned to death, some of the jurors recommended leniency, however. While the court was ready to provide a lesser chastisement, an objection was raised by the president's provincial council um, leader, James Logan, who happened to be Samson's former slaveholder and the crime's central target. According to the court, James was un quote, laid under some difficulty, lest on the one hand, a disregard to it may be imagined to perceive from injury and loss he himself has sustained, while on the other hand, a compliance with the request in suffering so heinous a crime to pass unpunished cannot be attended with many, but with many ill consequences, more especially as the insolent behavior of the Negroes in and about the city has been of late so much taken note of and requires a strict hand to be kept over them and shows the necessity of some further regulations than our laws have yet provided, end quote. So the decision was indeed personal for Logan. He was enraged that his former captive sought revenge, though it should be noted that it appears Logan was far from the victim of this interaction. Certainly he was a man benefiting from exploiting another human being, but more than this, however, Samson's choice to attack the home of Logan rather than the evidence of his current slaveholder is telling. His actions suggest that Logan treated the enslaved man particularly poorly. Logan understood the implication of a lesser sentence, but more than an attempt to win a personal vendetta, Logan's efforts to have Samson executed in response revealed a deeper consideration. The slaveholder was clearly concerned about the larger implication of commuting the sentence. Now, while slave arson was a rare occurrence when compared to the more common acts of rebellion like running away, the example helps us to reveal the important dynamics within captive punishment. This was a public act of resistance that required an escalated public response, lest the enslaved population as a whole could become emboldened. The institution of slavery, slavery relied upon force and fear to function, a fact seemingly well known to Logan. Fortunately for Samson, the council stayed his execution for three months and later provided his current slaveholder with the option to remove him from the colony. And since he disappeared from the historical record, it's likely his master merely sold him away, allowing the rebellious uh, enslaved man to continue his life far from Philadelphia. The severity of repercussions varied across urban Anglo-America for rebelliousness, whether that's running away or some other form of resistance. Uh, but two significant ingredients were, were present, terror and torture. Philadelphia's deep connection to uh, other cities meant the ideas uh, and that ideas uh, in this vein entered the ports uh, accompanied by goods and, and black bodies. In fact, a number of influential Philadelphians immigrated from the West Indies. Um, Isaac Norris and Anthony Palmer, for instance, were successful merchants who arrived in Barbados and uh, Jamaica, from Barbados and Jamaica, respectively, and they were heavily involved in the city's political life when the law that we just discussed was passed. And this, this is something that uh, is worthwhile for us to, um, to reflect upon, that, that we think about ideas uh, being shared in terms of um, this revolutionary era period, the ideas of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, natural rights discourse, all the things we're familiar with, but what we don't think about are the ways in which ideas of 
uh, punishment. The ideas of oppression are shared among uh, among these uh, these individuals as well. So in ways that these trade goods are moving, these these uh, individuals are sharing ideas about uh, how to be um, how to be an ideal slaveholder, how to um, enact punishment, how to realize or, or enact laws that will help. Um, and contain a population. And so these are uh, these are ideas that are being shared throughout time and space as well. As elsewhere in Anglo-America, liberty became a crime cemented in law and fortified in fear. For enslaved individuals like Caesar, absenting themselves from Philadelphia masters, the potential consequence would have been a whipping not exceeding 10 lashes. Again, the very trajectory which brought Caesar to the mainland carried the ideas which cast a terrifying shadow over his life as a fugitive. Disciplinary measures were lived realities haunting the consciousness of each forced laborer. So for enslaved people, the threat of a lash was more than an abstract concept methodically listed in an edict. Their eyes bore witness into the cruel realities of the tolls extracted for denying the demand to obey and their life histories would tell an all too common tale of physical torment that capture guaranteed. Cities often held what was termed a common whipper on the payroll for reprisals if masters were unwilling or unable to discipline their captives. The occupation was known as a jumper in Caribbean cities and some slaveholders procured the whippers services for convenience regarding the, the measure as a taxing chore. Because the punishments of urban bonds people suffered often occurred in public view, most forced laborers were aware of the stakes. Whether through visual testimony or harrowing tales of victims, the cost of liberation was clear to memory, many. The cruel lessons need to be conveyed to enslaved defenders and observers alike that resistance was a futile prospect and escape was a dangerous dream. With every crack of the whip, slaveholders hoped to strike thoughts of resistance from the multitude. With every scream of agony, they hoped to use terror to reaffirm collective obedience. And with every cut into the flesh, they used terror to reaffirm um, their, their hegemony. Therefore, enslaved individuals fleeing exploitation often knew what awaited them, anguish and despair. And so here we need to uh, understand, again, the, the, the way that this system of surveillance is set up, but also the system of collective uh, public punishment in ways that it's made to uh, disincentivize uh, folks like Caesar from doing what he just did, right? Um, that, uh, that, um, that it's made to uh, let everyone know what happens if, uh, if one would, uh, would break some of these laws or any of these laws in the case of Caesar. So here above, we see um, a prison that helps uh, demonstrate this. It's a typical prison in early America. Um, it's Philadelphia's High Street Prison, and it was a setting where a number of captives were held. Um, also known as the Cage in Caribbean cities, captured fugitives were committed to jails until claimed. Fugitives and those who allegedly uh, were guilty of other crimes were often disciplined at prisons. These crimes range from petty theft to murder, and we just discussed arson as well. At this site, the crack of the whip could be heard, and here the corresponding screams could be, uh, would leave the victim's um, lips. Prisons throughout urban Anglo-America were sites of, uh, of misery as well as vibrant black life. These urban jails were in, located on main thoroughfares, usually around where the, mar the uh, central marketplaces were held. So the Philadelphia's High Street Prison, for instance, uh, was located along the city's most prominent street. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with Philadelphia, this is uh, Market Street. It's the main thoroughfare, in, including to the present day. Um, it helps us understand the sort of the architecture, uh, architectural dynamic of this, right? That that uh, these areas of punishment, including these prisons, were deliberately set up in areas that uh, were close to the marketplaces. So again, you have the foot traffic, you have the public display, and um, and everyone can see, right, what happens if if there are violations. So that that includes enslaved individuals. That also includes their potential uh, free black allies, and of course, potentially their their uh, their white allies as well. And understanding that there are real implications to violation, violating these laws. So as we think about Market Street and uh, in Philadelphia, we also need to realize that there uh, that this is a corresponding representative of how these these prisons are situated throughout Anglo America. Um, so there are similar layouts in Caribbean cities as well. And uh, for example, in Bridgetown, the cage was located on Broad Street. I think uh, the corollary for us today in Richmond would be Broad Street, for instance. Again, a main thoroughfare uh, where there's a lot of foot traffic. 
These are populous locales where inhabitants would buy and sell goods. The enslaved and free would traverse these paths by the prison. And herein lay the genius of these architectures of violence. By using these spaces as central sites of uh, enslaved black punishment, slaveholders could publicly reaffirm their hegemony. A careful look at this Breton illustration underscores the public nature of these reprisals. And if I work this, uh, this um, pointer, you can see that there are two enslaved men depicted here. One is, uh, is in the stocks, another looks like he's on a whipping post. And so this is typical, again, of prisons at this, at this period. Um, and so the physical pain belonged, of course, to the individual offenders, but the, uh, the display belonged to the multitude. This would have been Caesar's fate if apprehended, enduring shame and torment for all to see. And so above you'll see uh, actually uh, a close up and a famous depiction of, of enslaved women being whipped, but this helps us understand um, the, uh, what, what it typically looked like. The hands were, tended to be restrained um, in this way and, uh, and the, the uh, individual being whipped was usually uh, stripped um, and, uh, and then they would be disciplined in public view. Now, while urban slavery is uh, often depicted as less oppressive than rural bondage, the reality could prove more complex. Ankle shackles and neck restraints were two impediments that burdened a uh, bondsman named Cato in mid-18th century Philadelphia. The irons were consequences, the result of seizing freedom several times, but the weights of the chains were largely irrelevant to the enslaved man. For several times had the silver assist engineered ways to free himself from the shackles of slavery. Enslaved blacks could and uh, could be condemned to an unknown fate. Um, slaveholders occasionally decided to sell bonds to people who frequently fled. Sale guaranteed revenue while holding on to constant flight risks, held no guarantees. This could mean a life of gang labor sold from Philadelphia to the Caribbean. This could mean also restraints, as was the case in this man, uh, Cato. Merchant errands could have quickly turned into sugar cultivation for Caesar, and an autismal shop might be swiftly exchanged for cane fields and shackles, in the case for Cato. Capture, therefore, could forever be alter the life of a fugitive. And so here is, uh, here is one of the punishments that was typically enacted upon folks that are running away. Or um, we, we discussed um, also things like arson or various other uh, infractions, the, the, the punishment of being sold away. And it seems doesn't seem as harsh as being whipped, for instance, if in, at uh, early glance, but I think we all seem to realize that what this means if they're being sold away is A, they're being sold away from their family members and everything that they know, the communities that they're a part of, but it's also, they tend to be sold away to, uh, to more arduous labor um, uh, situations. So usually uh, to sugar cultivation in spaces like the West Indies, uh, we can also think about uh, spaces like Louisiana and later on cotton and cotton in the cotton belt, including Louisiana, Mississippi, um, et cetera, in the 19th century. And so what that means is that this, this is grueling, arduous labor on a day-to-day -day basis. And so um, this is where we get the term in the, in the 1800s being sold down the river. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's a quote in Frederick Douglass's narrative where he, he, uh, he actually is, um, it's one of his early escapes. He actually, as many of us know, he does uh, escape and uh, receive his freedom. Um, but he, in an early escape, he's actually found out. And he has this uh, quote in one of his narratives, if you're interested, he, um, he's afraid of being sold into the deep south, into uh, more arduous laboring circumstances. And he, he likens it to a death. He calls this separation worse than death. And so um, the point being is here is that when we think about being sold away as sort of a lesser sentence, I think we need to really think about you know, what that means in terms of losing loved ones, losing community, but also, um, also having a reality of very arduous laboring capacities um, and, and circumstances that aren't necessarily true in urban settings, although they can be true in urban settings. Now, the reprisals urban bonds people confronted in urban Anglo-America and throughout Anglo-America more broadly, both known and unknown, made the journey for Caesar all the more treacherous. Documentary evidence concerning Caesar's fate is scarce, but it appears he was able to free himself from the bonds of slavery. Post-war records no longer list the enslaved man in Wilson's possession, and there's little evidence he was sold away. Wilson posted advertisements for his lost labor into the next year with no indication of success. 
the arrival of the Revolutionary War and the subsequent British occupation of Philadelphia, among other spaces in early America, likely improved Caesar's chances. And above, you'll see a number of, uh, of books. Um, I'm always happy with providing, uh, happy to provide book recommendations to those folks who are interested in reading more. These are a number of books that really uh, look more deeply into uh, African Americans and their their experiences, contributions, and struggles during the Revolutionary War. Liberty probably became a more, more than elusive dream for this man, Caesar, though the threat of capture and torment was still on his steps, remembering that despite the fact that even if he was able, which he likely was able to, to um, get his freedom, that doesn't mean he's, uh, he's actually free, right? Because he's constantly looking over his shoulder and has the threat of capture through the entirety of his days, unless, he's, uh, unless he purchases his freedom. Uh, many others were less fortunate than Caesar. Instead, most runaways were actually recaptured, and their screams and pains testified to the price of freedom. Whether lash, brand, or death, the repercussions for retrieval were high. Caesar, like countless others, hoped for liberty, prepared for agony. And this would not be the last time Caesar's slaveholder confronted the instability of the institution. In fact, a forced laborer named Ben also fled Philip Wilson's employ a few years later. The escape was remarkable given that the enslaved man possessed a lame leg and walked with a cane. His physical disability did not make the dream of freedom any less tempting. For, and for some, as we can see, the thirst for liberty knew no bounds. Like others in his position, Wilson likely attempted to discern how perceived loyalty could transform into blatant defiance. Slaveholders looked to their bonds people for answers, often postulating that coercion or racial immorality motivated resistance, a thought process explicitly revealed in slave codes throughout the Americas. But the answer lay at the foundation of the institution itself. Slavery indeed extracted labor from enslaved individuals, but more elusive, however, were efforts to strike the idea of liberty from their intellects. As Equiano aptly observed, quote, when you make men slaves, you deprive them of half their virtue. You set them in your own conduct, an example of fraud, rapine, and cruelty, and compel them to live in, with you with a, in a state of war, and that you can complain they are not honest and faithful, end quote. Caesar understood the requirements of survival. Wilson, like countless other slaveholders, mistook compliance for contentment. Bonds people realized that they would have to follow to survive, but enslaved people's thoughts would continue to remain their own. Though their bodies were enslaved in bondage, their intellects could never become completely held captive. Thank you. <clears throat> Uh, you had mentioned that, uh, of course, Philadelphia was a port city, and so in theory that gave them avenues for escape. Have you come across any evidence that some of these sea captains, I'm talking about unscrupulous people, mm -hmm. might have agreed to help them escape and then taken them someplace, maybe in the West Indies, where they sold them? Yeah, it's happened all the time, actually, right? right? And so this is where we get into the that delicate calculus, right? Who do you trust and, and, um, and uh, how do you actually... Uh, organize or situate a successful escape, right? Because there is that constant incentive for even those folks who are seemingly allies or just, you know, you use the term as scrupulous, right? Um, even if we, we think that their motivation is seemingly money, right? Because they're usually getting paid by these enslaved individuals to, to, be, um, to be shepherded or carried away to freedom. Um, they're being bribed and, and, and um, given money for, to do this. You would think that that um, equates into some level of allegiance or a level of uh, understanding, of, you know, a verbal contract, but some of them just go around and, you know, they sell them in the West Indies. It happens all the time, unfortunately. And so, again, the complexities of who you trust, when, um, part of this is also luck, right? Uh, we, we think about, you know, the savvy we've been discussing about what it means to run away, the planning that it takes, right? The physical, um, the physical uh, preparation it requires, but also part of this is just luck right, um, luck or God's will, however we want to frame it, um, that, uh, that really dictate whether a successful runaway, um, successful runaway attempt actually does become a success. It's a great question. A uh, couple of questions. Uh, one, uh, was there a pre-Civil War sanctuary area or sanctuary city that they 
the slaves, you know, looked to go to. And secondly, once a slave did escape, uh, what was the process of buying one's freedom? It's a great question. So uh, these cities in the uh, in the north tend to be. Um, I don't want to say sanctuary cities, but they tend to have a greater opportunity or chance of maintaining one's freedom if you're a fugitive. Philadelphia being a space um, at the forefront, we could talk about New York, for instance, and, um, and other major sort of northern cities. The issue, of course, is that uh, kidnappers are, are running around, right? They're, they're running rampant, particularly in the period after the Atlantic slave trade is um, abolished after 1807. And so there's, an, there's a constant threat looking over one's shoulder, even in spaces where there's a vibrant abolitionist movement like in Philadelphia, New York, Boston, um, there's still constantly the threat of being kidnapped, right? Um, so, uh, so I don't know that I would use the term sanctuary cities, but there's a greater opportunity to maintain that freedom. Uh, what happens in terms of purchasing the freedom is um, occasionally you'll find individuals who uh, who will have white allies that will purchase their freedom, um, usually abolitionists, and they'll they'll uh, they'll they'll um, go through lengths and and um, be willing to um, to negotiate that on on their behalf in order to secure this legal freedom. Um, we do have instances also of enslaved individuals making arrangements with their masters to try to uh, to purchase their freedom, but again, there's this this precariousness of that, right? Because it's also a frequent thing for, for slaveholders to say, um, you work you um, you work this much, right? You on the side beyond the your regular laboring uh, requirements. You save up this money. I'll let you purchase your your freedom for let's say fifty pounds. And then when the enslaved individual gets gets to that number, they say no, never mind, right? Or or um, they they aren't true to their word. And so folks find themselves constantly working to buy their freedom, but doesn't become a reality. And so um, again, there's this 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 precariousness even to uh, the ability of of trying to purchase one's uh, one's freedom, unfortunately. <laughs> Your title includes two uh, dates, 1680 to 1807. Is there a reason that you have not explained in your talk for those particular dates? Is there a treaty that's been signed? Something, I'm curious. Yeah, yeah, wonderful question. So 1807 is uh, when Great Britain and the United States um, first, uh, first passed legislation barring the Atlantic slave trade. So it dramatically changes the institution of slavery. That's when the domestic slave trade really has an uptick. And so this is where we see uh, for those of you who watched 12 Years a Slave, Solomon Northrop, how he's taken from the North and marched, kidnapped, marched down to the South, and you get to see what the domestic slave trade looks like. That's in large part because the Atlantic slave trade is outlawed in 1807, so it changes the dynamic completely. Um, and this is where we see large population. Richmond becomes a large uh, slave trading market, taking enslaved individuals that are sold down to spaces into the cotton belt. Uh, 1680 is when uh, the majority of these major cities in early America have their have their basis or they have their their genesis, and so this is sort of uh, helps us understand when these cities are are um, are uh, coming into fruition and how do we understand their progression over time um, before this switch after the Atlantic slave trade. And so the other part of that, I think, for next project is well, what what do we think about or how do we see this? Uh, these cities function in terms of the domestic slave trade and what do we see Richmond and other cities like Richmond really function in that conversation. So um, that that will likely be the next book project. <laughs> Give me a few years. <laughs> um, I, I want to first applaud you for the way you so vividly recreate the, the, the physical and psychic challenges of um, self-emancipation, especially given the relative lack of archival materials for this subject and for, you know, kind of illicit activities in general. Um, I want to kind of follow up on the earlier question about allyship. I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you've come across any artifactual or other archival evidence of systems for learning about and learning to trust allies. And I'm thinking of a slightly later work um, on um, Virginia's Maritime Underground Railroad mm. by Cassandra Newby Alexander, who found there were certain nicknames for allies who would help, like Ham and Eggs was um, a black seaman who helped um, potential escapees. 
um, find passage out of um, Hampton Roads area or something. I'm curious if in your work in this earlier period, you found any evidence of um, how um, escapees could find allies? Yeah, so um, that's a wonderful question because I mean, you're right. When we think about um, these this, this these networks of allies, we're oftentimes thinking of the Underground Railroad, and that comes into fruition into fruition um, to a greater extent into the 1800s. Um, in the earlier period, really thinking about these free black communities, right, that are functioning um, as sort of clandestine allies. Um, and we can see it in, in certain examples, right? Um, and when we, for example, there is um, a man named uh, Richard Allen, very famous in Philadelphia, and he actually gets kidnapped. Um, he's a free, he's a free black man. He actually purchases his freedom, but he's uh, he he actually gets kidnapped, and he's able to use these networks of of free black individuals in order to get uh, messages out to uh, an abolition society in order to get help, right? And so here we're thinking about uh, free black communities within these urban spaces, but also um, in spaces that do have abolitionist organizations. Um, that's really where they're they're using these networks to try to. Um, hide if they're fugitives to try to gain freedom or maintain freedom if they are free. And so uh, that's really how we see that function in, um, in real ways that uh, are difficult to um, pin down by their very nature, right? It's meant to be clandestine, but we can see it through specific examples like Richard Allen, for instance. I think we've got time for one more. If anyone else has a question. No pressure. <laughs> Oh, we have one more back here. I'll ask a follow-on question. Uh, back to Philadelphia, it sure. was a you know it was a Quaker city, right? And I, the Quakers in the 19th century were very abolitionists, but in the 18th century, were they of any help to you know escapees? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so Quakers are are at the forefront very early. Um, in in terms of abolitionism, it's it's a it's a couple of Quakers that really have an impact. Um, here we think about Anthony Benezet, for instance. Um, he actually starts a a school for uh, for free black children in Philadelphia. Um, he's at the forefront of uh, the abolitionist movement there. Um, and so we have uh, him and Benjamin Lay are a couple of uh, individuals that are important in getting um, the Quakers to to uh, outlaw slavery among themselves, meaning that those Quakers who do not um, who do not free their 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 slaves, they're um, they are uh, they're excommunicated from from the Quaker faith, right? And some of the merchants, there are merchants that are Quakers, slave merchants who who are slave traders. They 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 allow themselves to be excommunicated, right? They would rather um, focus on their their profits rather than their faith. And so, uh, so my point is, is very early. The Quakers are are um, at least individuals are are um, are at the forefront of this abolitionist movement, making sure that uh, Philadelphia is progressing and becomes this abolitionist hub. The the first abolitionist organization, the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, the first abolitionist abolitionist organization in uh, the Western Hemisphere. It actually. Um, is first started by Quakers, and that's picked up later after the revolution by uh, by non-Quakers. And so it, there's this um, this abolitionist thrust among the Quakers um, that's very much tied to their faith, in part because of the belief in nonviolence. Right? Um, they're famous for falling out of favor in Philadelphia and elsewhere throughout the country because during the revolution they 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 preach nonviolence and peace. Right? Um, but keep in mind everything we discussed. Right? Slavery requires a level of violence in order to to make sure that the slave system stays intact and make sure that um, that enslaved individuals are um, are not running away, et cetera, et cetera. And even then it's it's almost impossible to keep them compliant, right? And so and so the Quakers are at the very early at the helm in in uh, these early conversations. And so it's it's really their um, this early legacy that they start in the 1700s, mid 17 to late 1700s. That's really picked up um, after the revolution in Pennsylvania and elsewhere throughout the country, particularly in the North. Um, this abolitionist fervor um, that they're that they really start in terms of um, in terms of white allies, and of course we have a number of free black individuals. Richard Allen, for instance, as I mentioned, uh, works with Quakers. He actually attends Anthony Benezet's uh, school in Philadelphia as a child, um, and he actually uh, helps found the first black church in uh, in the United States or in the thirteen colonies, right? And so. Um, and so there's these very real connections between Quakers and um, their efforts to try to uh, attack um, the institution of slavery very early and um, 
and it's picked up later on uh, by uh, by a number of other folks and individuals who are non-Quakers um, in in the United States. So that's a really good question. Thank you so much, everybody, for your attendance, for your questions. Let's give Michael another round of applause. Thank you. And Michael's going to be available in Commonwealth Hall to answer any more questions or sign books.